Well, our text is uh, Luke 12, starting in verse 35. So as loved sons and daughters receive this, receive this word this morning, hear it from the Christ full of grace and truth. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch, or in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let's pray together. Jesus, my heart is really just crying one thing, and that is that your name would be exalted in this message today. The call before us is a hard call, but it's a gracious call. Lord, you call us away from everything that we might gain everything in you. Lord, the things that we're clinging to seem like life to us, but in truth, the things that are outside of you are not life, they're deceptions. And so what seems like a sacrifice is actually the best investment decision we will ever make. And so I pray that our hearts will be humbled and our minds will be willing to receive the call of Christ today to forsake everything else in life that we might gain the treasure of you because As I said, Lord, in gaining you, we gain all. So exalt yourself today and call your people up today, I pray. I thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' mighty name, amen. From Luke chapter six, about in the middle, I think it's verse 16 if my memory serves me right. Might be 13, but I don't know. It doesn't doesn't matter much. From the middle of six till the end of chapter 18, One of the main themes of that part of Luke is that Jesus is training the apostles and also he's training the disciples. And of course, one of the reasons that God has seen fit to preserve all of this teaching for us, all of these stories for us, 
is because through Jesus' training of those people, he's also seeking to train everybody who follows him wherever they live and whenever they have lived. Christ is a trainer, and he's teaching us in this section of Luke how he trains. So when you read the chapters before us today, 12, 13, 14, and 15, in some ways it seems like they're a little bit disconnected stories, vignettes, But as I have pressed into these things and prayed about them, I've come to see a thread that really runs through them all, and that's what I want to talk about today. And the thread that I see is this, that in these chapters, Jesus is pressing in and teaching us more about what it means to actually follow him. And as we meditate on the things that Jesus has said, I think we come to see that it's not enough to admire Christ. It's not enough simply to believe in Christ in some superficial way. It's not enough to claim that we follow Christ. We must actually follow Christ. In order to know him, we must follow him. And in order to follow him, we must give up everything to have him. The call to follow Jesus Christ, beloved, is an all or nothing proposition. That's really the heart of the meaning of Luke 12 through 15 and the heart of the call that we will receive today. It's a high call. It's a hard call. But as I prayed, it's a gracious call because Christ is inviting us to have everything in him. To my mind, the text that Jesse just read for us serves as a sort of anchor for this entire section because it issues a call that is then defined and clarified in other parts of these chapters. Specifically, Jesus' main point in chapter 12, 35 through 48 is that his disciples should live in a constant state of readiness. We should be in a constant state of alert. We should live as though Christ, our master, will come back at any single moment and focus our entire lives on that moment. We should be like the servants of a rich and benevolent man who are waiting for him to come back from his honeymoon so that we can throw a feast for him and celebrate with him in the great things that have just happened. And we should focus everything in our lives on the anticipation of that moment. And if our master, when he comes, finds us waiting for him, even if he comes at some odd time that we don't expect, like two in the morning or four in the morning or six in the morning, if he finds us awake and and ready to party with him, to celebrate with him, to rejoice with him, then oh, how great will be our joy. Not only will the Lord shower us with kindness, but he says something that just blows my mind. He says that he will come in and he will sit those awakened servants down at his table And he will serve us in the place where we really should be serving him. It's hard to imagine. And then if you picked it up as Jesse was reading, he said, if you're faithful to be stewarding the things of my kingdom while you're waiting for me, then I will hand over to you all things. I will give to my servants a power that is usually reserved for only kings. Such is the grace of our master. Such is the joy of those who will wait for him and forsake everything else in this life to do so. We should not be like servants who delude themselves into thinking that their master is long delayed and so they can just live in any way that they want to live. We should not think that we can use people for our own purposes and then that we can get away with it. We should not think that using people is irrelevant to our master. We should not indulge our flesh in all kinds of food and drink and drunkenness and carousing and think that our master doesn't care. We should not hear Paul's words when he says, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
we should not hear that and then come to the conclusion that we're free to sin because grace will abound. This is not the truth. This is not the call of our master. He has called us to come out of the world, not into indulgence, and those who are waiting for him will be waiting for him in holiness. Look with me at verse 17. Jesus said there something that's very penetrating to me. He said, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, will receive punishment, whatever that looks like. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will still receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Beloved, we rejoice in being a church that exalts the worth of the word of God in the life of the church, and we should rejoice in that. But I want you to know that because we live in the rich soil of biblical preaching and teaching and application, much will be required from us. Nobody who has spent any length of time at Glory of Christ Fellowship will be able to look Jesus in the face and say, I did not know what you required of me. Because here, Sunday in and Sunday out, as weak as we are as a church, we just open up the Bible, look at what it says, do our best to understand it, do our best to receive it, do our best to live in it. The Lord has spoken clearly to us for seven years and none of us will be able to escape his speech. We won't be able to say we didn't know. The standard for the people in this church will be very high, and I pray that we'll have ears to hear. The question that should be pressing upon our hearts as this sinks in is this, are we awake? Are we paying attention? Are we fixated on our master and the things of our master? Are we eager for his coming, and are we preparing for that moment, or have we grown complacent? Are we falling asleep? Are we giving ourselves to the things of the world and to the things of our flesh? Are we preparing for ourselves joy or discipline? This is really the question I think Jesus wants to press upon all of his followers, whoever reads these words. Whether we stay awake or not in Christ is extremely important. And so as I've meditated on these chapters this last week, one question that's really pressed upon me is this. How, Lord, do I stay awake? I want to stay awake. I want to be vigilant. I want to be ready when you come. So so what does that look like? And as I read chapters 12 through 15, I I discerned seven answers in those chapters. And I'm going to talk about all seven of them today. Now, I'll tell you right up front, seven points is too many points for one sermon. I had a professor in school who said, don't have so many points that your sermons will be pointless. And right now, I'm definitely teetering on the edge of that this Sunday. But I'm going to take that risk because I want to say what's in these chapters, and here's my gut. Not all seven points is going to relate to every person, but one or two of these points will relate to every person. And so rather than trying to take in everything that's said today, be seeking the Holy Spirit and ask him to point out to you the one or two things that he brought you here today to say to you. I I feel that as I'm preaching, the Holy Spirit will visit each of us and press upon our hearts and say, this point is for you. Listen to this point. Meditate upon this point. Take this point home. When you feel the power of the Spirit landing upon you, pressing into you, please don't resist him because what he's trying to do is bring you along a path that leads to eternal joy. 
He might have to confront you. He might have to challenge your way of life. He might have to ask you to let go of that thing that you're so tightly clinging to. But the reason he wants you to experience this little bit of pain is so that you will have this eternity of joy in Jesus Christ. So listen to these points, and more importantly, listen to the Holy Spirit. And let's trust that in all of our lives, he will speak today. He will sting us with the word, and he will cause us to sing by the word today. So seven things, and here's number one. In order to stay awake in Christ, we must learn to fear God more than we fear other people. If you look at the beginning of chapter 12, I'm not going to read the text there, but you'll see there if you'll skim it over, that Jesus warns his disciples to beware of the Pharisees because they were hypocrites. These people were religious leaders, but they were also political leaders, and they were very skilled at using their political power to gain religious power, and often it seemed that their, religious, their political power was actually more important to them than God, more important to them than the things of religion. The reason that Jesus issued this warning at this time is because he had just been at the house of a Pharisee having dinner. And while he was there, they got into a debate about religious things, really legalistic things. Jesus began to challenge them. He began to press on them very hard. At times, he was, he was harsh with them. They deserved it, but he was harsh at times. He, he was confronting them. As the meal came to an end and Jesus was leaving, the Bible says that these leaders began to press Jesus very hard with all kinds of questions because they were trying to trap him. They're trying to gain evidence against him. They're trying to get fodder so that they could bring him into a Jewish court of law and convict him, punish him, possibly imprison him, possibly kill him. Beloved, Their lips were overflowing with the language of God, but their hearts were filled with plots of murder, actual plots of murder. And you know that in the end, they actually succeeded. They put him up on a cross. It was not for nothing. It was not for without cause that Jesus said, beware of these people. Beware of them. They are hypocrites. They speak of God. Their hearts are filled with murder. And Christ knew that they would not only come after him, but they would be coming after all of his followers. He knew that the time was going to come when his followers would stand to show allegiance with Jesus, and these people would threaten their lives as well. So if you'll look at verses 4 through 12 there, you'll see that he told his followers to fear God and not to fear men. He told them to fear the one who could take your life and then send you to hell over the one who could take your life and then do nothing. Fear the one who has eternal power, who has all power, over the one who only has temporal power. I tell you, fear him. And then having graciously pointed them toward the fear of God, look at what Jesus says in verse 7. It's amazing to me. He just told them to fear God, and now in verse 7 he says, do not fear. Fear, but do not fear. Why? God is powerful, but he is merciful. Reminds me so much of Aslan, the lion, and C.S. Lewis is the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. When the kids asked, is, is, is Aslan tame? Is he safe? And one of the best lines in the book, I can't remember who said it, but the line was, oh, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. You come near 
to the lion of the tribe of Judah and his roar will cause you to tremble. But he's slow to anger and abounding in mercifulness and graciousness and faithfulness and steadfast love. So fear him, but do not fear. Fear him in the right way and rest in him in the right way. Let this dominate your lives, disciples. The only way we can stay awake in Christ is to fear God more than anything else in this life. It's the only way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of staying awake in Christ. To stare at him, to be fixated upon him, to, to, to be aligned with him, to be faithful to him above everything, above anything, is the beginning of being prepared to see him, beloved. It's really the beginning of everything. A week ago, Saturday, so about eight days ago now, a Christian couple working at a brick kiln in Kashur, Pakistan, was detained and tortured for allegedly desecrating the Quran. It's really hard to tell what actually happened, but this was the charge, that they were desecrating the Quran. So they were taken, they were put into a room, and for three days they were tortured pretty severely there. Last Tuesday morning, about 7 a.m. our time, their fate was sealed, And a mob of about 100 Muslims came to the place where they were, took them out of that room, dragged them to another place, and brutally beat them, brutally killed them. And they gave their lives for Christ. And beloved, that young man, 28 years old, that young woman, 21 years old, stood with Christ until the moment of their death. They did not turn back. Amen? The call to walk in the fear of God over the fear of men is very real. It's right here. It's right now. It's happening in our world, and it is eternally significant. And that story might seem so far away that it's inapplicable to us, but I tell you, the day is coming when things like that will begin to happen on our very soil. Weeks ago, a woman was beheaded by somebody over the stupidest thing, but I I just have it in my gut. In fact, I'm just remembering right now, 14 years ago, I heard a brother get up in a pastor's conference and prophesy that persecution is coming to the soil of America, and I believe it with all my bones. The question is, are we awake? Are we ready? Are we fixated on Christ? When the chips are down, will we remain faithful to him or will we flee for the comforts of this world and, and, and just for the sake of clinging to this life? Are we awake? Last month, five pastors from Houston, Texas had their sermons subpoenaed by the mayor of the city, Anise Parker, because they openly opposed the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, which promotes a pro-LGBT agenda. The rationale for the subpoena was that the pastors, in standing against this ordinance in public and from the pulpit, were actually doing politics from the pulpit, and so the city came against them to punish them for doing that. At one point, the city amended the subpoena to say that they didn't want their sermons, they wanted their speeches. But this was just a a, a linguistic game, and thank God, in the end of the, at the end of the day, they lost the battle. Under tremendous pressure from Christian leaders across the nation, including our beloved Pastor John Piper, the mayor withdrew the subpoena on Wednesday, October 29th, and for the time being, the pastors in Houston have won the victory. What would have happened if the city went through with their desires and tried to convict these pastors? Nobody really knows, but this much I know. The call to fear God over people is very real. It's right here. 
it's right now and it has eternal consequences. I have no doubt that people in this very room in our lifetimes will have to stand for Christ at great cost, at great consequence. What will you do at that moment? Are you awake? Are you aware? Are you ready? Are you fixated on Jesus? Does your love for him overwhelm your desire for comfort? Are you so eager to see him glorified that you're willing to suffer anything? I believe it was Polycarp who at the end of his life, they're just about to burn him at the stake and they give him one last chance to recant his belief in Jesus. And he said, oh, how could I break faith with the one who has been so faithful to me all these years? Are you seeking God day by day? Are you sowing the seeds of a, of a committed love in your heart so that when the chips are down, you will say, yes, I will stand with Christ. By the way, I can't help but adding this little addendum. As part of a nationwide protest, pastors from across this country sent their sermons into the city of Houston, and along with them, they sent Bibles, thousands of Bibles. The mayor of Houston has publicly committed herself to distributing all those Bibles to the city through the police department, and she said publicly, I heard her say it myself, that these Bibles were a gracious gift to the city of Houston. So let's be praying for that city, perhaps What the devil meant for bad, God will use for great good. Amen? The holiday season is upon us, and in the coming days, we're going to have many opportunities to talk with friends, with family, with acquaintances, with neighbors, with strangers. In fact, this last Halloween, several of our families had outreaches, and one of them was in my neighborhood. And for the most part, my neighbors have said nothing to me, but the other day I ran into a couple of them, and they weren't super kind to me. I don't think they were happy that we used that occasion to say something about Jesus. And it just made me think that in our own homes, in our own families, in our own circles, are we willing at this time of year to stand up for Christ no matter what the consequence I know that God is wise and sometimes the thing he wants us to do is to be silent. But what I'm saying is when the Holy Spirit stirs in your spirit and and encourages you to speak a word to your family or friends or acquaintances or neighbors, will you stand up and speak for Christ or will you shrink back in fear? The call to fear God above people is right here. It's right now. It's very real And it has eternal consequences. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of staying awake in the Lord. And so mainly what I'm saying is a positive thing. Are you staring into the face of Jesus day by day, sowing the seeds of a committed love that's based on his covenant with you, not your commitment to him? Are you sowing those seeds so that when the chips are down, you have the spirit, the wisdom, the power, the courage to stand and say, yes, I belong to Jesus no matter what that means. I pray that we'll be awake. Second thing, in order to stay awake in Christ, we must value him over all the treasures of this life. If you look at Luke starting in chapter 12, verse 13, and then going all the way through 34, again, we're not going to read these passages, but if you'll just even look at the section titles, you'll see that the commonality there is really finances, it's money. While Jesus had been teaching a number of things, one of the people in the crowd stood up and asked him to arbitrate a financial matter. Specifically, he wanted Jesus to intervene in a family affair so that he could gain an inheritance. But one thing I love about Jesus is that he hardly ever just deals with our presenting issues. He's a heart reader. He sees beyond the presenting issue and into the depth of what's really going on. And so he just said to this man, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? 
It's not my job. Here's my job. Rid your heart of covetousness. And when he said to this man, he said to all, rid your heart of covetousness. And he told them the parable of a guy who was just so caught up in the desire for money that he built more and more and more barns so that he could store more and more and more stuff. But while he's in the process of that, God calls him a fool and requires of him his life. And now the guy's got to answer. And he's got all these earthly treasures, but he's got no treasure with God. And so Jesus says to them, listen, don't live for treasures that will fade away. There's nothing wrong with having possessions, but if you live for your possessions, you're in big trouble. Instead, wear yourself out for the possessions that will never, ever, ever fade away. Be rich toward God. Don't just be rich in this world. And then he went on to say that for those of us who love God, we don't have to worry about financial issues. Let me ask you, in the last month, how often you've had anxiety over a financial issue? How about in the last year? How about in the last five years? How often does financial anxiety plague you? Jesus is actually inviting us into a way of life where we have to have no anxiety over financial matters for this reason, for this simple reason. The God who cares about the birds that eat at our feeder every single morning, every single afternoon, every single night, the God that has a global feeding plan for birds every day, the God who cares about grass and flowers and arrays them with a glory that Solomon knew, You ever been out in the middle of a field and just been blown away by the beauty, uh, just the floral beauty of the place? Who planted those? Who nurtured those? Who's taking care of those? At our house, this beautiful woman right here puts a lot of work into nurturing our plants. Who is nurturing the plants all over this globe? It's a gracious God, a great God, and Jesus makes a simple point. Do you seriously think that he cares more about birds and, and, and plants than you? God cares about you tremendously. You have nothing to worry about, no need for financial anxiety. So on the one hand, he invites us to get rid of covetousness. On the other hand, he says no need for financial anxiety. God is with you. And then he makes a very stunning promise, starting in verse 32. If you look at that, 1232. Fear not, little flock. I think it's so beautiful that the great God of this universe calls us a little flock. What a precious, affectionate thing to say. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your God is planning to hand everything over to you for the glory of Christ. So here's the kind of life you can live now. Sell your possessions. You don't need them. And give to the needy. God will provide for you. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old. You don't need to build barns that last 100 years so that they can store your stuff. Just feel free to use what God gives you with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beloved, Jesus is saying, here's one way to stay awake. Get rid of the love of money in your life. Realize that God is your provider. Realize that God is the one who will satisfy your soul's Look to him as you look to no other, and you will stay awake for sure. So how are you doing with this? Is covetousness gripping your heart? Is anxiety over finances gripping your heart? Well, if that's true, I want to encourage you to meditate on these verses. Don't just read them, but soak in them. Think about every word, and let your Father teach you that he will provide for your needs. Third thing, 
In order to stay awake in Christ, we must see the seriousness of our sin and repent. We must run away from our sin and run toward Jesus Christ. If you look at the beginning of chapter 13, you'll see that there were some who were following Jesus and they asked him about an event that had been all over the news in their time. And Jesus not only commented on that, but he added another event that was hot on the news. If they had lived in our day, it would just be all over the the cable networks. It would be all over radio. It would be in the newspaper. So Jesus is taking big stories that everybody knows, and he says that in both cases, people died in tragic ways, but that these circumstances should teach us a very important lesson, namely that we should not look on the bad fortunes of other people and think that we're any better than them or any more blessed than they are. In fact, Jesus says that unless we repent of our sins, we will all likewise perish. That's a very strong word. As John Donne famously said, when we hear of somebody's death, we should not ask for whom the bell tolls because in truth it tolls for us. It tolls to remind us that we must turn from our sin or we will perish. It tolls to remind us that the satisfaction of Christ is better than the satisfaction of anything else in this life because the day is going to come when our number is up and we're buried in the ground. It's going to happen. Everybody is going to die. And so God is gracious. He's incredibly gracious. If you look there, Jesus tells a little bit of a parable about a farmer who goes and sees a fig fig tree that's not bearing fruit, and somebody asks, should I cut it down? And he says, no, no, don't cut it down now. Tend it and give it about another year to bear fruit, and then if it still doesn't bear fruit, then go ahead and cut it down. I take this to mean that God is very gracious. He's very, very patient, and he's willing to give us time to begin bearing fruit. But beloved, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And if we don't repent, there will be a very high price to pay. We will perish in our sin, Jesus said. One thing I never want is to perish in my sin. So if I'm gonna follow him, I need to hear something. I am not allowed to play with sin anymore. It's not a small thing. I think as Christians, especially as those who are in touch with the massiveness of the grace of God, it becomes easy to justify our habits because we think God will forgive us. It's really not that big of a deal. His grace is so much bigger than my sin. All of that's true, but we should not presume upon God's grace because the day will come when we will give an answer. Last Thursday morning, a very close friend of mine from California sent me a long text asking for prayer from his church. I mean, the text came, and I think I opened up and said, you have 15 texts. I was like, wow, something's going on. He said that his pastor just that morning had gathered with the staff of the church and confessed that he and the secretary had had an adulterous affair. Sadly, that church is going to hear that news in about two hours from right now. It's a church in the Palm Springs area of California. This pastor is an author. He's a speaker. He had a radio ministry in the Southern California area that was beginning to grow. But whatever was happening in his life, he did not take his sin seriously. And now his sin has not only destroyed his family, although who knows, maybe God will restore the family, but for now, what destruction would that be to hear that kind of news? But it's destroyed his ministry. He's out. He might be out for life. It's destroyed his credibility. It's brought harm to the people of God in that area. This church is about five miles away from the place where I grew up. And just like, oh, I don't know, about 15 years earlier, 
Another pastor who had, had grown this huge ministry also got caught in a very similar kind of sin. And so now I'm so concerned about my home area because it just seems like the reputation of successful pastors is that they also have a little something, something going off on the side and, and going on over on the side. And what really concerns me is what that is communicating to people about Jesus Christ. It's incredibly sad. This guy played with hidden sin. God is a consuming fire, and I have no doubt that he's the one who exposed this stuff. And believe me, you and I might not have the prominence of a man like this, but if we continue to play with our sin, the day will come when the Lord will expose us. And woe to us if we hear a story like this and speak condemnation against a man like that without searching our own hearts. Any one of us could do what he has done. Woe to us if we do not take this occasion to let the Lord speak into our hearts and teach us how to kill the sin that remains in our lives. Woe to us if we rise up in judgment and fail to repent because we will all likewise be exposed. We will all likewise hurt others. We will all likewise bring shame to Christ unless we bow before him in humility and open confession and let him do a work inside of our lives. In order to be awake in Christ, beloved, we have to take our sin seriously and by grace run away from it as fast as we can. So how are you doing? As I'm speaking right now, as I'm telling this story, is God pricking your conscience? Is he touching your heart? Do you have a little something-something going off on the side that if it comes out is going to hurt people, damage the reputation of Christ? If you do, I want to assure you, your God is massively gracious And he has already laid down a sacrifice that will forgive that sin. But his sacrifice bids us to come out into the open, come out into the light, confess it, and be healed. And so I want to urge you, don't just confess it privately to God, but find a brother or sister here in this church and confess it and do it today. Don't make a tomorrow plan because tomorrow plans always lead to more tomorrow plans. Say, today, right now, this moment, this is what I'm going to do. I promise that everybody who does the word of God will find deliverance in Jesus Christ. And I pray that that will happen for some of us this very day. Fourth thing, in order to stay awake in Christ, we have to confront the religious idolatry in our lives. If you look at chapter 13, starting in verse 10, you'll see there the story of Jesus healing a woman on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And though it was an awesome thing that he did there, the ruler of that synagogue, who was very much like a local pastor, he became upset with Jesus because he was so fixated on his vision of what God was allowed to do and not allowed to do on the Sabbath day that he couldn't see the stunning act of grace that had just happened before his eyes. He was so bound by religious idolatry that he couldn't even rejoice with the people. The people were rejoicing at the grace of God. This guy was grumbling. And I wonder, I just wonder how many times at Glory of Christ Fellowship in churches like ours, how many times has God wanted to act and do something in our midst, but he would not because the church wouldn't allow him. In our stubbornness, in our religious preconceptions, in our idolatry, we tried to constrain Christ and we grumbled against him when he began to move in our midst and do things that we're not used to, do things that maybe are not comfortable for us. I don't have anything specific in my mind. I just wonder, I'm just asking the question, how much are we ourselves bound by religious idolatry? I really don't know the answer, but I know that in order to stay awake in him, we have to resist the temptation to put him in our little box and have him do only what we think he should do. 
It occurred to me this week that we cannot follow Christ and restrain Christ at the same time. He doesn't, we don't get to restrain him. He gets to restrain us. We don't get to tell him the boundaries. He tells us the boundaries. He is good, but he is not tame. He doesn't belong to us in the sense that we own him. We belong to him in the sense that he owns us. And so I don't think there's any way to be fully awaking Christ unless we let him challenge the religious idolatries in our lives. And I think, as I've searched my own heart about this, what I think is that this is a lot easier to see in other people than it is to see in ourselves. But the call here is to search our own hearts and see this inside of ourselves. And I don't know another way to do that. But just to come into the presence of Jesus and in the light of Christ, be exposed for who we are. Let him speak to us. Let him uh, show us our own hearts and let him free us from the things that are restraining him from doing what he wants to do in our life. So if you struggle with religious legalism, with religious idolatries, my counsel to you is just flee to your master. Let him expose your heart because he'll also work to transform your heart. There's no way to stay awake in Christ and constrain Christ at the same time. So may we understand that our master is not tame, but he's good. Fifth thing, in order to stay awake in Christ, we have to take up our cross and strive to enter through the narrow door. I want to read two passages with you. They're a little bit longer, but nothing I can say would even come near to what Jesus has said. So please look with me first at chapter 13, verse 22, and then we'll look at a passage in chapter 14. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he, Jesus, said to them, not just to this guy, but he's now saying to everybody, which I think would include us, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Oh, that we would have ears to hear the word of the Lord. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. All you workers of evil. Now there's a sentence I never want to hear Jesus speak to me. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, Some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. There is a paragraph worth meditating upon. Now please turn with me to chapter 14. I want to start in verse 25. It's a very similar kind of call. And I think Jesus, in repeating himself as a wise teacher, he basically says the same things in different words. And again, I pray with all my heart that by the Holy Spirit, we'll be open to really hearing the words of Christ now. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. The call is very high, beloved. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You can't just hang out with Jesus and reap the benefits without entering into a covenant relationship with him. That's what I hear him saying. This cross-bearing, as I said a couple weeks ago, is really about dying to other allegiances and being aligned with Christ. Dying to other loves and being satisfied in Christ, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence. If you don't die to other allegiances and cling to Christ, you cannot be his disciple. You cannot be his disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now here's the heartbeat of it. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So much could be said about these things, and I really do want to urge you to ponder them carefully. The call to follow Christ is a very serious call, a joy-producing call, and a, a call that leads us to eternal life, eternal joy with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But this is a serious call. In order to gain everything in Christ, we must lose everything in this world, or we cannot be his disciple. And so the main thing that I personally have taken from these passages is that what it means to follow Jesus is to take up our cross and die to everything else but Jesus. It means to bow to his will and to his ways in everything. And if we speak his name but do not bow to his will, then I'm not sure that we are his disciples. It is possible, obviously, for us still to struggle with obedience, to struggle with sin. And of course, there's grace abounding to cover these things. Of course, God is immensely patient with us. I'm not saying that. We're not a legalistic church. We believe in grace. We live by grace. But beloved, the grace of Christ does not remove the height of the call of Christ to leave everything and follow him. So how are you doing? How are you doing? How are the allegiances in your heart compared to the allegiances of Christ? What is capturing your heart right now? If God somehow saw fit to put up here on this screen your checkbook so that we could see how you spent your money in the last year and your, your schedule so that we could see how you've actually spent every minute of your time this year, what would we all see? How would it look? If the truth was exposed, what would your allegiances be? And I am saying this, yes, to bring conviction, but mainly to bring clarity so that we'll choose Christ over the other things of this world. The things we give our time to outside of Christ just don't satisfy 
Tracy, I want to ask you after the service what that text is that you read during the worship. I recognize it, but I don't remember. But that text spoke so powerfully to me. It said, why do you keep eating and drinking and spending your money on stuff that never satisfies your soul? Come instead and be satisfied in me. Here's a gracious God keeping the same standard up high and saying, listen, I will give you grace, but turn from these things. They will never satisfy you, like ever. You could have 10 lifetimes of indulging in video games. It will never satisfy you. Christ alone will satisfy you. So how are you doing? Sixth thing. In order to stay awake in Christ, we must die to our desire for honor and the praise of others. In the interest of time, I'm not really going to say anything about this at all. But I do want to say that if you're the kind of person who struggles with position and power and prestige, the desire for acknowledgement, you want to be recognized in front of other people, that I want to encourage you to meditate on Luke chapter 14, the first 24 verses. If God is pricking you in the heart right now and saying this one's for you, then please just look at Luke 14, the first 24 verses later on your own time. Meditate upon them and let God speak to you through them. I promise you that if you'll come to him humbly, he'll expose your motives and he'll transform your motives. He'll help you to see that being acknowledged by God in Christ is better than any other kind of praise that you could get in this life for sure. And if you have the pleasure of God in Christ upon you, you don't need the praise of people. You just don't. You could say, I'm just thinking back to an award day that I had in my college years, and they're giving awards to this people and that people in front of a couple thousand people. And it was nice. I won a couple religion-based rewards, and that was nice. But you know what? I didn't need it. I've got those rewards still, and they're tucked in a drawer or a box somewhere. I don't care about them. I'm okay in Christ. I don't need the praise of men. And so if you struggle with this, just go to your master. Let him satisfy you. Number seven, in order to stay awake in Christ, we must learn to be on mission with Christ. At the beginning of chapter 15, you'll see that the leaders of Israel were grumbling against Jesus because he was hanging out and fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. So in other words, he was spending time with people who were not seeking God. He was spending time with people who were undesirable. And the religious folks of his day looked at him and said, now what is it about him? Why would he hang out with people like that? What does that tell us about him? This looked to them like a scandal. This looked to them like a big problem. It looked to them like there was compromise in Jesus' life. And before you get too quick to be judgmental against these leaders, just ask yourself this. If you saw Pastor Kevin and I hanging out at McCoy's bar down the road, and you noticed that we weren't there telling people to turn or burn, We weren't there just preaching, but we were actually in there enjoying the company of people who were drunks and sinners and all of that. If you saw that, honestly, how would you react? How would you respond? What if you found out that I went to a party where people were drinking beer and smoking pot? What would you think about me as a pastor? Would you think that I was a compromising man? Or would you be excited that I was on mission? Now, I'm not Jesus, so maybe, maybe there's a reality that I would have been compromising. But let's just suppose, for the sake of conversation, I wasn't. How would you respond? I think we might have similar feelings if we saw Jesus hanging out with certain kinds of people. And evidently, Jesus thought that there was something to their grumbling because he answered their question. He gave them three parables to address the concern of their heart. So I think he probably thought there was some validity to what they were saying. So he told them the parable of a person who lost a sheep and left 99 found sheep behind to go find the one that was lost. And when he found it, he put it up on his shoulders and he ran back home in joy and everybody shared in joy. And he told them the story of a woman who lost a valuable coin about a a day's wages. 
And she needed that money, so she dropped everything to find it. And boy, when she found it, was she happy. Ever lost your car keys for about an hour or something like that? How do you feel when you get your car keys back? That's how God feels when a sinner is found. And then he told them the story about a man, a father, whose son went astray and went into great rebellion, but finally came to the end of himself and the end of his ways and turned back to come home. And when he came home, the father had his arms wide open because his heart was already wide open. And he was teaching these people. He was teaching them. That in order to save the lost, you have to seek the lost. In order to seek the lost, you have to actually be with the lost. For our purposes, you can't just live in a Christian bubble and be on mission with Christ. You've got to get outside the bubble and get with people who don't love Jesus. You might need to be around people who are casting shame upon Jesus because how else will we tell them the gospel? And the thing that balances this out, the thing that keeps us safe, is being serious about Christian community. When we're doing life together, there's safety in that. There's, there's encouragement in that. There's accountability in that. And together, as we're loving each other, then we're free to go out into the world by the power of Christ and be on mission with Christ. And what I'm trying to say in this point, beloved, is a lot of times the reason we're asleep to the things of Christ is because in truth we are falling asleep to the mission of Christ. How often do you share the love of Christ with somebody? I I know that different people have different parts to play. I'm not asking you how often have you played somebody else's part, but I'm saying how engaged are you in exalting the glory of Christ among a lost world? Believe me, the more you find your place, the more you get engaged, the more you will be awake to the beauty of Christ, to the beauty of Christian community, and to the power of being on mission in order To be awake in Christ, we also have to share in the mission of Christ. And I pray that he will give us ears to hear, especially this holiday season when we have so many opportunities to share the love of him. So there it is, seven things. Like I told you, I'm aware, way too many things for one Sunday. But I want to urge you to meditate on all of these and just ask the Lord to grip your heart with one or two things. Ask the Lord to speak into your life. The bottom line is that his call is very high and his joy is even higher. And so I pray that he will give us ears to hear and hearts to follow. Let's pray now that he will help us. Lord, I want to thank you for your powerful word. I want to thank you for the days on which you spoke these things to real people in real places. I want to thank you for the days in which these every story we've summarized today actually happened. I want to thank you for the reality of that. And I want to thank you for inspiring people like Luke and enabling him by the power of the Holy Spirit to preserve these stories for us. I want to thank you for preserving the Bible for the last 20 centuries through so many battles, through so many occurrences, circumstances where it seemed like the Bible could be lost and destroyed. I want to thank you for preserving these things for us so that we could hear them and receive them. And I want to thank you, Father, that as I have been preaching, your spirit has been stirring. And I want to ask you now, Lord, to come and complete the work that you began in us. I know that one or two of these points has really pierced my heart this week. And I pray that you would help me now to follow through, that I would be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And I pray that everybody who has humbled themselves before you today and has been pierced by your word, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in their lives and lead them to a place of higher joy. Show them, Lord, even in these days, the fruitfulness and the joyfulness of following in the ways of Christ. Oh, Lord, when we take up our cross 
we see that that sacrifice is nothing compared to the joy that we gain in you. So please, Lord, come and do a work in us and convince us by the Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.